Let us pray. Father, we pray that as we come to your word this day, that you would be at work among us by your spirit, that you would remind us of your gracious, loving favor toward us extended through Jesus Christ. And may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our redeemer. Amen. Well, you may be seated. Good morning, everyone. So, um, continuing today with part two of the sermon I began last Sunday on God's transforming grace, looking at Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. Last Sunday, we focused on verses 1 through 3, um, which is the really hard part to hear. And today, we'll be focusing on verses 4 through 10. Last Sunday, we talked about the difficult biblical truth that we are dead in our trespasses and sins. Verse 1 of Ephesians chapter 2 says that explicitly. And that there is nothing any created human being can do through human remedy or human means to remedy this. We talked about the reality of our sinful nature as human beings, that we are both sinful by nature and we commit sinful acts as well. But then we concluded with the first two words of Ephesians 2, verse 4. But God. An incredibly profound and important conjunction. But God. And these words, but God, take what is an abysmal, tragic, and humanly unchangeable situation. A situation into which all of us are born and live. And these words of God infuse these dire circumstances with the possibility of hope and new life. And God breathed transformation. Look at verses 4 and the beginning of verse 5 again with me. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love which he lo- with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sin, made us alive together with Christ. Thanks be to God. But God. Why? Because he is rich in mercy. Because of his great love for you and me. Because of him, because of his nature, because of his loving kindness, he has made us alive through Christ. But, but this this all-important conjunction introduces us to God's action toward us as sinners in our plight described in verses one through three. I've heard God's grace in a most basic sense described as getting what we don't deserve. And that's really, while that's a kind of a common definition, it's a really good definition of grace. Harold Honer in his excellent commentary on Ephesians says this about this passage. In this instance, the calamity of sin is not something undeserved. Yet God extends his mercy towards sinners because he loves them and knows that they are helpfully trapped in their own snare. Look at what God in his merciful character has done for us through the sacrificial death and resurrection of his son, God the eternal son, Jesus Christ. Look at verses 4 and 5 again. I want to read that again and continue to the end of verse 5. But God... 
being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sin, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Brothers and sisters, this is all of God. It is all by his grace. Someone who is spiritually dead cannot bring himself or herself back to life. To paraphrase that Anglican priest and one of my heroes of the faith, John Wesley, we cannot exercise any good intention toward God of our own volition because we are indeed dead in our trespasses and sin. And yet, as we read in 2 Peter 3, 9, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises, some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. So if God's heart is for all to reach or come to repentance, yet we are dead in our trespasses and sin, how in the world does all of this happen? How are we translated, as Ephesians 2 says, from the course of this world and from following the prince of the power of the air to being made alive in Christ? Well, scripturally, I believe this works by means of God, God offering a measure of his grace to each of us. Now, hang with me and follow this. We're going to dive into a little bit of theology here. God offers a measure of his grace to each of us. Titus 2.11 reminds us, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. This dimension of God's grace is what St. Augustine called preparing grace. John Wesley, speaking of the same thing, called it prevenient grace. Fancy term, but think about the pre and prevenient, P-R-E, coming before. Prevenient grace is most simply grace that comes before salvation. It is the grace, if you will, of the front porch when you're at the door, but you haven't entered in yet. It's the grace that prepares us to hear, receive, and respond to the gospel. Another writer has said it this way. This grace convinces them, meaning men and women, of being sinners who need God for forgiveness. Remember, we talked about this last Sunday in terms of God's grace. Until we come to grips with the reality and are confronted with the reality of our own sinfulness and brokenness and that there's nothing that we can do in and of ourselves to remedy that situation, until we come to that place, we never understand our need for grace. Nobody simply wakes up and says, hey, I think I'm going to invite Jesus into my life today as if somehow it was his or her idea. It's all of God. Yet we can, hear this, yet we can resist God's preparing grace. We can resist the grace God gives us to respond to him. Yes, we cannot initiate or exercise a good intention toward God, but we can turn away or turn aside from his preparing grace. And in doing so, miss the very life and the transformation which he offers to every one of us. We can miss the fullness of his life and his grace and consequently miss his transformation in our lives. Many of you know I served as a hospital chaplain for a number of years, and I did a lot of work in trauma chaplaincy, which I know this sounds weird, but I really enjoyed trauma chaplaincy. Um, I was at a level one trauma center, which is the highest level. And in doing trauma, cha trauma chaplaincy, 
you meet a lot of really wonderful people who just have bad things happen, car accidents, work injuries, and that sort of thing. You also meet, quite frankly, a lot of people whose lifestyles and life decisions and choices predispose them to traumatic injury. You know what I'm saying? Um, Sometimes it's addiction. Sometimes it's running with a wild crowd. Sometimes it's just being stupid, like jumping out of a second floor window so your boyfriend's grandmother doesn't know you're in the house and you landed on the sidewalk this time rather than in the flower bed. That is a true story. (laughs) But when I was doing trauma chaplaincy within the health system that I worked in, for those folks, particularly who had traumatic injuries because of lifestyle choices and, and addictions and that sort of thing, we had a very defined and, and quick protocol because we had a short window to really help them try to get started on a different track. And there was a whole, it was secular, but it was a whole methodology of helping them to come to grips with their addictions and get them started on the right track. We had, in addition to the chaplain and the social worker and all these folks, we had a full-time addictions counselor who worked just with trauma patients. And this was the deal, though. We could, we could extend that offer to them. And with some people, it really was the beginning of a, a real renewal and transformative process. And some of the folks here who are part of the recovery community, I think, know what I'm talking about here. But for other folks, we could, we could put it all out there and offer it to them. It was, it was all there. But they resisted. They turned away from that offer for assistance and help. And that's what's what we can do with God's grace. Yes, God offers all of us the grace, all of us the life through Jesus Christ. And there's nothing we can do to, to enter in that ourselves. It's all by God's grace, but we can, we can do this. We can resist. We can turn away. There's so much else to say. But when God makes us alive in Christ, as we no longer resist his grace, he begins a work in us And he does oh so much more. Because not only does God give us his life through Christ, he also begins reshaping us according to his purposes. Look at verses 8 through 10. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. As God the Holy Spirit works God's will and good pleasure in us, we become more and more like Jesus and less and less of who we used to be, of what we used to be. And this change is not outward or superficial. It is a divine, supernatural change. It is a deep, real transformation of our being, something which is holy of God as he works in us by his spirit. Remember last Sunday, I began with an illustration of metamorphosis, and we talked about how scientists have now been able through micro CT scans to see what goes on inside a cocoon of a caterpillar becoming a butterfly without killing or destroying that, that creature. And we talked about how certain parts of that, 
that caterpillar actually shrivel and die and other parts that were there in the DNA but were not in any way active come to life and, and a caterpillar becomes something totally other than what it was as a butterfly or as a moth. It's a picture, an imperfect picture, but still a picture of what God does in us through his transforming power. And as God works this, it's an ongoing process, an ever greater turning away, repentance, if you will, turning away from the ways of this world, the flesh and the kingdom of darkness, and an ever greater transformation which conforms to the heart and the character of God. Another author said it this way, when grace, hear this, when grace introduces us to repentance, meaning turning away from that which is not of God, turning away from the things of this world, when grace introduces us to repentance, the two of us become best friends. When anything else introduces us to repentance, it feels like the warden has come to lock us up. But when grace gets involved, the truths of repentance reveal a fabulous world of life-freeing beauty. We are, by God's power, evermore becoming his workmanship, created for good works in Christ Jesus. This, brothers and sisters, is the power of God's grace at work in us. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God. So as we conclude this morning, there are two things that I think are important for us as we live into the reality as believers, as brothers and sisters in Christ, in God's transforming grace at work in us. The first truth is this. Grace is free, but it's incredibly costly. Say that again. Grace is free, but it is incredibly costly. Costly. There are many skewed or erroneous ideas about grace in our culture at large today and even in some sectors of the church. One of them is this. Grace is anything goes. So I've been redeemed. The spirit of God lives in me so I can do whatever I want. And it doesn't matter because I'm forgiven. And grace becomes in a very unscriptural way confused with license, with anything goes, and nothing matters. Brothers and sisters, that is not a biblical picture. That is not a biblical understanding of grace. It's what we call cheap grace. And cheap grace is not God's grace. Yes, God meets us where we are, dead in our trespasses and sin. But that is not where he leaves any of us who are truly regenerate and have experienced his new life because the life of God is transformative. St. Paul reminds us in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 17, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. God's grace, costly grace, is transformative because it is of God. And again, it points back to this concept of metamorphosis. I don't think anyone has expressed this concept better than Dietrich Bonhoeffer in his book, The Cost of Discipleship, also known as Discipleship. And I want to read you a quote. It's about two paragraphs, but I want you to listen very carefully. What Bonhoeffer says in contrasting cheap grace 
with costly grace. Cheap grace is that grace which we bestow on ourselves. Cheap grace is preaching forgiveness without repentance. It is baptism without the discipline of community. It is the Lord's Supper without confession of sin. It is absolution without personal confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, grace without the living incarnate Jesus Christ. Costly grace is the hidden treasure in the field for the sake of which people go and sell with joy everything they have. It is the costly pearl for whose price the merchant sells all that he has. It is Christ's sovereignty for the sake of which you tear out an eye if it causes you to stumble. It is the call of Jesus Christ which causes a disciple to leave his nets and follow him. Costly grace is the gospel which, we, which must be sought again and again, the gift which has to be asked for, the door at which one has to knock. It is costly because it calls to discipleship. It is grace because it calls us to follow Jesus Christ. It is costly because it costs people their lives. It is grace because it thereby makes them live. It is costly because it condemns sin. It is grace because it justifies the sinner. Above all, grace is costly because it was costly to God, because it cost God the life of God's son. You were bought with a price. And because nothing can be cheap to us, which is costly to God, Above all, it is grace because the life of God's son was not too costly for God to give in order to make us live. God did indeed give him up for us. Costly grace is the incarnation of God. Grace is indeed free to us, but it is incredibly costly, costly to God. And second, nobody is beyond the reach of God's grace. This is the clear testimony of God's word. Think again of 2 Peter 3.9 and Titus 2.11, which I read a little while ago. Think again of Ephesians 2.8, by grace, not of yourselves, this is the gift of God. I know that we say, I know, let's make it personal, I know that I say that nobody is beyond the reach of God's grace or at least I hope that we believe and think that. But do we truly and really believe that in a real and practical way? Think about it. Because sometimes I'm guilty of that as well. Do I really truly believe that nobody is beyond the reach of God's grace? Do we believe that gang members in our community are beyond the reach of God's grace? Do we believe that the most racist person in our land or those who perpetrate heinous crimes are not beyond the reach of God's grace? Think about it this way. Do we believe that even an ISIS terrorist is not beyond the reach of God's grace? What about people right here in our neighborhood Maybe not people who fall into any of the categories that I just mentioned, but people whose, whose lives, quite frankly, are a train wreck. Their lives and their worlds are an absolute mess. 
do we believe, do I believe truly that God is able and God is more than willing to transform them through his power? Or do we somehow, because I think we can all fall into this, this, this way of thinking, or do we somehow still want them to at least in part fix themselves and deal with their, them, their stuff at least a little bit to help things from getting messy for us before we minister to them. I think we can fall into that kind of trap. I can fall into that kind of trap. And the reality is this. If we really believe in the power of God's grace to transform, and we really believe that people apart from Christ are dead in their trespasses and sin, that has profound ramifications for us as a church as we seek God's face and pray to reach this community. Because you know what? People are going to come with all their mess. And Jesus will transform them. But let's not expect them any more than we expected ourselves to fix everything before God's transforming grace was at work in our lives. Let's not have a double standard. Let's, let's be prepared and ask God to help us because it's not easy to help us to have the right response, understanding that until they encounter God's transforming grace, there ain't nothing going to get fixed in a true and lasting way. But God calls us to reach them. And God calls us to reach them in all the messiness that creates for us as a church God calls us to reach them in all of the awkwardness and difficulty that somehow that will create for us. And yet these are the people that Jesus died for. These are people that God calls us to reach with the transforming love and power of Jesus Christ because he is their only hope. He is the only hope for this world. So as we think about God's grace, about the incredible love that God has extended to us, to you and me, through Jesus Christ, may we be aware that it is all of God and that it's all of grace. And anything that he has done and is doing in us is for his glory and the praise of his name and not for us in any way to take credit for. And may we remember that the grace we have received is the same exact transforming grace that our neighbors need. And may God give us his gracious love and a costly understanding of his grace in our lives so that we are more and more aligned with the heart of God and so that we as a church living out the costly grace that has been extended to us through Jesus Christ may reach others with that same love in this community and may he give us his vision and his wisdom and his insight, not in the flesh, not in self, but vision breathed by the power of his spirit at work in us to touch others in this community at their point of need and to see them encounter this same living Christ and his transforming costly grace. Let us pray. Father, thank you for your grace. Thank you, Lord, for 
every dimension of your grace, that grace that comes at the front porch, the grace of salvation, the grace of your sacraments. Thank you for your ongoing, transforming, sanctifying grace in our lives, making us to be more and more like Jesus. Father, may we never, ever forget. And Father, forgive us when we have neglected the truth of just how costly that grace is. That it costs the eternal Son of God his very life and his life's blood. Not because of him, because he was sinless, but for us. And Father, as you transform us, fill our hearts with compassion, fill our hearts with a willingness to be the hands and feet of Jesus, fill our hearts with the desire to see others transformed, even when it makes things messy, even when it takes us out of our comfort zone. But Father, fill us with your grace for that which you have called us to and for such a time as this. May we be surrendered to your will. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.